Welcome back to the Focus on Agriculture podcast. I'm your host, Preston. And I'm Jason. Jason, I've got a, a big weakness for, for fruit, especially peaches. So much so, in fact, that my wife and I started growing a few peach trees a few years ago. And this episode was right up our alley. Yeah, there's nothing much better than a fresh peach right off the tree in the middle of the summer. I always think it's interesting, Preston, to talk to people about the development process. So, you know, with corn and soybeans we're used to, that's a very straightforward process. But when we're talking about breeding a horticultural crop, there's a lot of things that breeders look at. So not only the appearance and the flavor and the smell of the product, but also the ability to overcome all the diseases and insects that are out there waiting to feast on that plant. Today we spoke with Ksenia Gossick, who is a peach breeder at Clemson University in South Carolina, and she's also the president of the National Association of Plant Breeders. Yeah, this was an excellent conversation. If any of you listeners are interested in learning more about the plant breeding process, I'd encourage you to go back and reference episodes 16 through 18, where Jason and I talked to a few different experts in the plant breeding field, and I think they did a great job. So be sure to reference those episodes if you have interest. Yeah, and also, Preston, for people interested in the breeding of tree fruits, we recently had an episode, episode 57, where we talked to Neil Carter about the development of the Arctic apple, an apple which resists browning. For sure. Well, without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Ksenia. Welcome to the podcast, Ksenia. To kick things off this morning, would you tell us a little bit about your background, education, and career history? Thank you guys for having me. Yes, of course. I'm, uh, I was born in Yugoslavia. That, uh, at the, right now, that's a Serbia. And it's a northern part of the country, right on the border between Serbia and Hungary. My mom is Hungarian uh, or was Hungarian, and my dad was Serb from coastal part of the uh, former Yugoslavia. So it was a kind of a funny mix. And uh, we, I grew up in a village that was basically half Hungarian people and half Serbian people. And uh, land in that village used to be owned by Germans during before the Second World War. And then when the Germany lost the war, the Germans fled the uh, land and then it was restitution between the countries. So they actually never got back and that land was given to a Serbian people. And so, but my mom's uh, family house uh, was in generations and we also uh, that land is specific because if you know about the geography, uh, that uh, area stretches into the Hungary is the remnants of the uh, sea. And so the land is really rich and soil is really rich. Anything you throw in grows. And so that was my big surprise. Later on, I'll touch about South Carolina and uh, how depleted the soil is and how much you have to put in to get uh, back, you know, from the plants. And uh, back home, we just didn't think of it. The land was, uh, soil was so rich in organic matter. So we grew, and, and so the whole that region is actually agricultural region. And, uh, but my village is specific because the soil is kind of mixture of the sandy soil and the rich organic soil. So people grew uh, uh, grapes, uh, uh, orchards, they're all like a, a cherries and apple orchards and, uh, and some of the 
field crops, basically mostly for feeding their own animals because we produced our foods uh, on our own. We had gardens around the houses and we had the bigger land, portions of the land in the outskirts of the village where we grew the food for animals that we grew for our own consumption. So uh, growing like that, I worked all my summers, which I don't, didn't like at the time, you know, working in the vineyard or orchard or pruning or weeding out and everything. And anyway, I, I loved it. And I ended up uh, uh, studying fruit growing in viticulture. And uh, through the studies, I, uh, I liked genetics and I liked the uh, uh, to understand how traits are developed and how you can actually mix and match and develop something new. And so I went for the postgraduate studies and I finished fruit breeding and genetics. I worked as an assistant professor in, uh, at the time, Serbia already. Uh, and uh, in 2001, Actually, uh, 2000, I came to US as a representative of my country to learn about the genetic modifications and how that can help in the agriculture. And uh, prior to that, I've been a one month exchange student and that's how I met uh, Dr. Corbin in University of Illinois. And that's how I met Jason here, our friend. <laughs> and uh, a year after I actually came and joined Dr. Corbin's lab as a postdoc. And that's where I spent six years. And then in 2007, interviewed for the a peach breeder and geneticist position at Clemson University. And that's where I am. That's you've had a, a, a much more diverse background or, or been a lot more places than a lot of us. And it's really interesting. And and I, I know we're going to talk about peach reading today. We're going to get into that. But I think your background is a little bit too interesting to just pass over quite so quickly. One thing you mentioned was that you were born in Yugoslavia, but by the time you left there, it, it was Serbia, which was part of Yugoslavia. Tell us a little bit about that turmoil that you went through as a student. That, that was a funny part because a uh, country was going through the changes. If uh, people check out the history, we had for like 50 years, one president, it was a communist regime, uh, but more on the socialist side. So not like what people think about the communism. We were really, we, we now learn what uh, freedoms we didn't have. But at the time, we were living a really nice and free life. The education was free, the uh, uh, like a, uh, health insurance was uh, covered and everything. Our passport, that was one of the interesting things, Yugoslavian passport, uh, you could go without visa to US, to the Soviet Union at the time, to Cuba, to China. I mean, because our country was positioned between the blocks like an uh, you remember cold war and those stories from long time ago and so we i grew up watching the cartoons from us so when i got to us and when i talked to you guys of course they changed the names so kids in Serbia would, you know, relate to the characters, but Bugs Bunny, and I mean, and all of these, um, those, those are the cartoons I grew up on. And so, so that was really, uh, I did not feel like we were isolated, but then once Tito passed, then there was a fight for um, 
power, I would say. And that was unfortunate what ended up in that civil war and the stupidity is that people now are realizing that that's just a stupid thing because now everybody wants to go and be part of the European Union. So, you know, we separated to go back to be again in the same, like a union, which is, that's just probably human nature. We won't go into there, that. But during my studies, we had to live through some uh, hard times and unusual times that normal people would not think of. And one of these was that see, uh, period when uh, our country was bombed to kind of force our regime to back out of certain parts and do certain things. And that uh, changed your perspective into the life and into uh, where food comes from, because suddenly there was no food. Uh, similar, something that would happen with pandemic you know, two years ago, when suddenly people realized that the supply chains are not functioning as normal, we take our life for granted. And when something happens, then we realize that the things are not uh, given to you, that they happen because people get up in the morning and do their jobs. And so <laughs> when that's disrupted, everything else is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think another interesting part of your story, I know one of Preston's favorite books is The Alchemy of Air, which is about the invention of the discovery of the Haber-Bosch process and, and how that went on and, you know, throughout the wars in Germany and things like that. And, and it's always interesting how in a, in a time of turmoil and disruption, how science still continues to go on. And you continue to do your research with an active war going on very close to you there, correct? Yes, yeah, that, uh, you know, you you kind of you cannot stop being you just because things are happening around you. So yes, we were forbidden to go into the fields and stuff because it was not safe. But I still, you know, sit on my bike and I biked about ten kilometers to the uh, field because I couldn't let it go. It was springtime, the the time when you actually make crosses, you do evaluations, and because of one. Uh, thing that we couldn't go across the Danube, University of Novi Sad, which I finished and uh, was working at uh, as an associate professor, uh, was on the uh, Danube River, uh, next to the Danube River. So we had to cross the bridges to go to our fields, some other fields, and we were not able to do that. And uh, we did not spray the orchard. And that's how we found several trees that were completely resistant to one of the diseases that were problem over there. So, you know, and we normally spray, so we would never see that. The silver lining. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Well, Sania, you mentioned a little bit that you grew up on in an area where the people were farming and, and the, the soil was very rich and you could raise a lot of crops. I guess at that time, maybe, maybe things were different than now. I, I'm sure things have changed over the last couple of decades. But what are the main maybe similarities and differences between agriculture in, in Eastern Europe or in Serbia specifically and in the U.S.? Oh, but that, that, that's, a, that's a great question because that's a, that's a big eye-opening when I came to U.S. with that exchange as a representative of my country because 
back home, oh, those are small, uh, not even farms. I mean, those are small amounts of lands that people have because uh, during the uh, former Yugoslavia, there was, uh, because of the communist thinking, uh, people were forbidden to have more than mm. 10 hectares of land. And so you could not have a big uh, land on your name and uh, the land was organized under the government you know, I don't even remember what the name was in, in, in English, what would the name be of those organizations, governmental organizations that did the agricultural production. And so they hired people and they, and so my village had one like those and they had like an apple orchard and a cherry orchard where I worked as a high schooler, you know, to earn the money, picking apples, picking cherries and stuff but uh, most of the people actually worked at the companies and had a small amount of land to produce the foods for for their household and then the neighbors would produce the milk they would have cows so we would buy milk from our first neighbor we would buy butter from our other neighbor so that's something that i should i have to tell you that was the best memory from my childhood when i would go to my hungarian neighbor to buy the fresh made butter and i saw how the butter was made and we would my sister and i would bring it home my mom would bake the bread and we would eat the whole loaf of bread because it was so good <laughs> you're making me you hungry <laughs> i know you you don't get those tastes anymore that's what i'm what i'm missing and so when i came here agriculture is here like a company you know, it's a lot, big chunks of lands. Everything is organized, in, industrialized, let's say. And then when we visited farmers during that uh, visit, we were asking because everybody was, oh, my God, look how much land, how much, you know, you know equipment. And oh, oh, that's like, it's like 100 times bigger than anything we had. I mean, the land, the, the whole country is bigger, you know, so you have to put it in this perspective. <laughs> but... Uh, we were asking, okay, so do you produce something for you, you know, around your house because you're like kind of in the middle of the field, you know, as a farmhouse? Oh, no, we just go into the store and, you know, once a week and we buy stuff. So we could not understand that, you know, because yeah. that, that's just different. That's a- but I think we are progressing towards that now. Uh, communistic era is done and people now are allowed to buy land and you know uh, accumulate more land and so my village is now maybe maybe five percent of people in the village actually is do are working as a uh, their main source of income as an agricultural income you know producing food and uh, uh, row crops and selling them and most of other people are just living in the village and traveling to the nearby city to work that sounds that's really interesting and it's probably the same transition that happened in in the US maybe i i don't know exactly what 70 years ago or you know where it went from smaller farms to becoming more efficient at producing the food and people that worked in agriculture, not necessarily working on the farm, but working in the supply chain and, and just a shift of things and to where now, you know, I, I don't know what the exact numbers are today, but one in a hundred or two in a hundred or whatever are actually involved in agriculture. Yeah. Which is the problem, I can tell you, because uh, we get disconnected from where the food's coming from. 
you know, and how it's produced. It's not produced in the store that you go and buy it, you know. Somebody yeah. actually works in the field to produce that food and, you know, or the animal or plant or wherever. Yeah, absolutely. I thought your comments on taste regarding the bread was interesting too. I mean, we have a small garden at our house and we grow tomatoes and there's a huge disparity between the tomatoes oh, we yes. grow and taste versus the, the store-bought. So yeah, it might not, might not be entirely good, this whole, you know, just being strictly industrial from an ag perspective. Yeah, I um, mean, we get, uh, we get spoiled because now 12 months of a year, we have tomatoes, we have uh, fruit, veggies, we have everything available to us. But because we don't, uh, I know the taste because I grew up going into the garden, picking up and eating. So you, you hit the nail with it, Preston, that uh, tomatoes are the, the biggest problem let's say for me because i i know how great they taste i eat them as a as a sweet snack you know when you pick them in the garden but in the stores you don't get that absolutely well speaking of contrasting different systems i was kind of curious so your full-time role you're involved with peach breeding a lot of our listeners are in you know production ag corn soybeans they might be loosely affiliated or loosely aware of the breeding process when it comes to agronomic crops like corn and soybeans. I was wondering if you could speak to some of the strategy differences between breeding horticultural crops versus agronomic crops like corn and soybeans. Oh, yes. <laughs> that, you, you got me there because it's a big, big difference. First of all, any fruit trees or perennial uh, uh, crops, uh, uh, they take time. And so one of the biggest difference is how you grow the uh, crops or how you grow the plants. In the row crop system, you grow them from seeds and those are annual plants. You just sow them, you harvest them, and then next year you sow again. So in the fruit tree business, you plant a tree and then it takes at least three years, depending on the crop, for some more than three uh, till you see the first fruit. So you have to pull uh, resources in that orchard for three years before you're going to start getting your money back. And that puts a lot of pressure on the breeders because we have to evaluate our creations for years to make sure there's no problems because we can ruin somebody if we release a cultivar and it's not tested in different environment and different production systems. So to put the things in perspective, breeding peach takes about 15 to 20 years from the moment you make a cross to the moment you release it. And so I'm your perfect poster child for this question because when I got to Clemson, they did not have a breeding program. So for your listeners to understand how things are going normally is that you have a running breeding program for 50, 60, or 100 years, and then you basically just replace the breeders as the previous breeder retires. And in the best circumstances, you overlap the breeders so the new person can actually learn the ropes from the existing guy or girl, and, and then that goes smoothly. Well, for Clemson, when I joined them, they had a break in that process for about 25 years. There was no breeding going on. 
Clemson had an excellent group of people working on peach research because peach is a very important agricultural commodity in South Carolina. South Carolina is second in the nation in peach production, just behind the California. And although Georgia is claiming to be the peach state, they actually have re really little to do the peach. <laughs> that was going to be my question. Georgia's a yeah. peach state, isn't it? <laughs> yes, they are. And they were. You know, so not not to not to be wrong, they were, but now they're shifting more towards like other crops, okay. and peach production is not even close in acreage and uh, uh, whole production as South Carolina is, and so when they hired me, I basically had to start from ground zero. So you know, make the first cross, wait to, for three years till I see the fruit and then start the process of selection, evaluation. And so uh, how the, I can quickly kind of cover how the process goes. Um, you, people normally know they go into the store, they buy the bag of seeds, they put them in the ground and plants grow and you get your food or whatever you want to grow. That's not how it goes with the uh, peaches. Uh, most of the uh, vegetables and uh, field crops are hybrids or uh, homozygous, meaning that when you uh, plant the seed, you're going to get exactly the same plant as what you, where you took the seed from. In fruits, that's not the case. You get everything and anything, nothing that looks like a parent because they uh, most uh, than often outcross, meaning they need some other pollen to create a new seed or a new um, plant. And with peach, it's slightly different because peach can pollinate itself. And that leads to narrowing the the base from where you can get your variability and the uh, different traits. And so, uh, so that's why we propagate vegetatively. Well, that means you can cut any piece of the tree and you can uh, root it or graft it on the rootstock and then you propagate it and you clonally actually keep multiplying the same tree. All of the orchards that you see are actually clones of one particular variety uh, or, or cultivar. And so that actually, uh, that's a good thing and a bad thing. The good thing is if I get the combination of traits that I want, I'm done. I don't need to build up the seed. I don't need to take care that that seed is clean, that there's no any, any intrusion with some other seeds or anything in. I have the tree, I just cut, and I actually can use even the tissue culture to multiply it in endless quantities. The bad side of it is to protect your invention because anybody can come and cut a piece, you know, get the bug, bud it on the rootstock and then have the tree growing in their garden or orchard or wherever. I'm mentioning the rootstocks. So that's another layer of problems. Uh, trees are not grown on their own roots. So there is a side of breeding for rootstocks and that's even worse than breeding for the scion that we call the cultivar above the ground portion of the tree, because it take, sometimes can take 20 to 40 years. Because if you can think of it, you first have to breed the characteristic of a good rootstock, and then you have to test how that rootstock influences the cultivar. 
because it can change the ripening date, bloom time. It can do lots of things, good and bad. Ksenia, for the people out there that maybe this is a little bit of a new concept to them, can you describe why the root would be different than the top of the tree? Why would you have a rootstock? What does that bring to the table for you? Uh, that's a, a production issue. You want uniformity. One of the major thing is you want all of the trees to be the same size, to be the same vigor, because orchards are planted in certain uh, space from tree to tree and from uh, row to row because of the mechanization and because of the way the trees are uh, trained into certain systems. And you want that to be as uniform as you can. And we, we get that by grafting on the same rootstocks. That's one of the things. The other thing, there are so many issues in soil with diseases, with, with all kinds of issues, uh, lacking of uh, maybe minerals or nutrients and or too much of something in the soil. And then uh, we have a specific rootstocks that are bred to cover the type of, let's say, culture soils or some others. So because otherwise your trees will suffer. They will be yellow leaves if there's not, if there's too much calcium in the soil and then iron could not be assimilated and not to go now in details. But basically when, when a tree is made, so to speak, in the nurseries, uh, there is a target a grower to where those trees will go most of the times. And the growers approach nurseries and say, okay, I want them on this rootstock because they have a certain problem with the land where they're growing their uh, orchards. So they, they want a rootstock that will address those issues and they won't have them. One more thing real quick on the roots. I'm just very curious. So what are some of the characteristics? Like what are some of the phenotypes you're selecting for? And then how do you evaluate those phenotypes with regards to roots? Is it like a root architecture or is it more nutrient efficiencies? Or, or I guess, yeah, if you would just describe that real quick, I'm very curious. Okay, so one of the big thing with the rootstock is how do you propagate it? So the best way is if you can do it from seed. And in peach world, we, we used to use the seed-raised uh, rootstocks because, uh, as I said, peach is self-pollinating. By self-pollinating, you basically is get, getting the narrow and narrow your, back, uh, your genes or gen genomics behind it. And that means that the trees look more uniform. In, let's say, apple world, they, uh, they raise the beds with the plants and they cut them so they cover the bottom portion of the branches with soil. So the branches root and then you basically cut rooted cuttings and then plant them and graft them. And there are other ways how you uh, produce the rootstock. And lately, most of the biggest nurseries on the West Coast and here uh, in the Tennessee, they're actually uh, trying to uh, use the tissue culture because that's the if you make it work and you find the right conditions, that's the most efficient way to actually uh, multiply in, in you know, endless quantities the same uh, genotype or same uh, rootstock. So once you 
once you make the cross and you get the seeds, you plant them in the soil, you get them growing, and then you start evaluating. One of the biggest issue for the rootstock is the suck, what they call suckering. Basically, what we don't want to see is a little rootstock growing around the tree. You know, we, we, want, we don't want that. And that's a characteristic that a rootstock uh, is kind of negatively evaluated on if it has that uh, trait. So right now I'm involved in the project that tries to help growers by understanding the resistance to fungus called Armillaria root rot. And that's the soil uh, pathogen, and it's uh, uh, living in the dead pieces of roots, so it's really hard to clean the soil. And if you think of it, we our soil in the southeast is for over 100 years in the peach production. So what we do, we maybe rest the soil year or two, and then again plant the orchard that sits there for 15, 20 years. Now the inoculum in the soil is built up so much that the trees are dying from that fungus. And so we are trying to understand how uh, the plants that do resist it, how they do that, and try to actually uh, uh, develop the tools so we can do breeding faster and then immediately go and evaluate how that newly developed rootstock uh, uh, behaving when they are grafted with a cultivar. One of the biggest things is compatibility between the scion and rootstock. That doesn't work well all the time mm. because many, many issues, let's say water logging, peach doesn't like water. So if there is a flooding that's longer than 24 hours, the peach trees will suffocate and die if they're on their own root or the rootstock that's peach. But plums, they can live longer and they don't care. So we have some rootstock that are interspecific that are crossed between plums and peach or plums only or different uh, types of plums. But the compatibility between the tissues when you graft peach on a plum does not work well all the time. And so that's something that you need to evaluate through the time. So you need to graft, you need to establish the orchard. This is strictly experimental to test the rootstock. We have, um, as I mentioned, the Clemson has a great group of people and they all work on peach from every aspect. So when I got hired in the 2008, uh, I was the last piece of the puzzle. I was breeder because there is a pathologist, virologist, horticulturalist, pomologist. You know, we had every, uh, every aspect of the peach production covered and just needed, and they had a great group of people that did on the molecular side, understanding the genes and traits and how you can combine them. And I was kind of the last piece in the puzzle to basically use all their knowledge and try to mix and match the parents and create the variability and find that perfect pitch that the growers want. But uh, Clemson, are you developing both rootstocks and, and cultivars? Or are you doing mainly cultivars and using other yeah. people's rootstock? You can say I'm a crazy person because <laughs> <laughs> how many lifetimes do I need, you know, to do it? I was hired as a scion breeder, so fresh market peaches. That's what I do. But, you know, you go where the problem is. And the growers are so stressed out because of this armillaria fungus because, uh, 
so to get things into perspective, before we found out that we have armillaria problem in the soil, we had a complex called peach tree short life which is what exactly the name says, shortening the life of the peach trees. Very and creative. It gets, exactly. <laughs> and so it, it basically is a combination of things and goes starts with the uh, ring nematode in the soil that stresses the trees. And then basically trees are weakened and then the Pseudomonas bacterium basically kills the trees because that bacterium is present in orchard and doesn't do anything when the trees are healthy. As soon as trees are stressed, it has an opportunity, we say like opportunistic one, and it basically kills the trees. So we solve that with the rootstock. So breeder, uh, uh, breeders from uh, USDA in Byron, Georgia, and horticulturalists from Clemson, Dr. Uh, Greg Riegard, uh, put their forces together and they evaluated uh, uh, crosses and found a cultivar that's now named Guardian that saved our industry because the trees were dying within three to five years after you plant them in. So you didn't even get one or two years of income back. Your half of orchard is already dead. Wow. Now that everything is planted on Guardian and we solved the, that issue, now the trees are dying in sixth and seventh years. And so we didn't know why. That's the fungus armillaria. And what armillaria does, it basically penetrates. So when the, the new root grows and reaches the, that piece of root where armillaria is dormant, it grows through that root and then armillaria activates and starts growing and clogging the supply line, for better word of it, mm -hmm. you know. And then basically when it reaches the crown of the tree, it girdles the tree and kills it. The problem with armillaria is that it takes six, seven years for it to happen. So, and that, that's the same side on the research. You it takes six to seven years to evaluate if something is tolerant or not. So it's a long time. And our, uh, the more you reuse the land, we call that replant disease issue, the more you reuse the land, the more problems you get because there are pieces of dead root that stay in. Nothing worked. We tried the chemical fumigation. We tried everything and anything. And basically, uh, genetics is the best way to go to create something that can resist that fungus. And now we have a big uh, grant that I kind of took the lead on because it is the part of the genetics, you know, and in understanding inheritance. And, uh, and then I joined as a kind of person that would make the crosses, but I leave horticultural side of the rootstock to the experts. You know, we partner with the nurseries in North in, uh, California and Tennessee, and they are doing the evaluation because they are the experts in our horticultural uh, faculty. And I just try to make the cross and I give them the plants and then they, they evaluate them for all the uh, traits that we want to see in the rootstock. I have a couple of kind of side questions, I guess. One is you mentioned the fungus staying in the soil. Uh, if a grower wanted to take an area out of peach production and then say do a crop rotation of some kind, how long would it take till they could replant and, and that soil would be safe to use? Are you talking 20 years? Are you talking a few years, maybe longer? 
not working with armillaria. Armillaria, for so far, uh, we know that it can stay for 10 years dormant in that piece of a root. Wow. And without being affected, the moment the fresh root grows through, it kind of reactivates. Wow. And armillaria is one of the really interesting fungus. It's one of the biggest organism on the whole earth. And the uh, forests in like a western part of the country, United States, are ba basically living on that one single organism that covers, I don't know, many thousand wow. uh, acres of the land. But the, And so there's more than 30 species of armillaria. And we have three that are making the problem. One is a problem in Southeast. The other one is problem in Michigan for cherry growers. And the third one is problem in California for basically anything that lives long in one spot. You know, it's, it's kind of a funny thing, but uh, walnuts are dying, grapes are dying. So California still doesn't have that big of an issue because they have, a, a we call it virgin land that was never used in orchard production. So they can kind of switch and put the field crops, you know, on this land and go with the uh, trees on the new land. But Southeast and Michigan, we have no choice. All of the land is generational in the fruit production. And so we, we just have to replant on the same land. And, and to just tell you what it does, basically it kills about 4% of trees per year. Wow. So, uh, and our grower, our biggest grower in South Carolina is getting worried because when you look at the pictures uh, uh, from uh, through the time of the same orchard, you just see less and less trees, you know, by the year eight or 10. And when, the, when you have a land that's used uh, over and over again for planting an orchard, then now the symptoms on highly infested soil come up within a three to four years, you start seeing death from armillaria. So we have one of the, uh, our biggest grower in South Carolina, one of the prime orchard land, he's now converting it into the construction, you know, because he cannot grow peaches anymore on it. So that outlook sounds kind of bleak. I know you're optimistic because you're breathing and you're and you're you're developing solutions. And so I, I know I know it's not as bleak as maybe it might sound, but you know you mentioned how breeding takes a very long time for tree crops. Are there other tools outside of traditional breeding that you're using? Is there are there biotechnology approaches that you can use? What are you looking at? Okay, so that's that's an interesting question. Uh, I know people are worried about GMOs here and there. Uh, rest assured, pe they're not GMO peaches. Uh, it, not for the lack of trying, uh, because just peach is uh, specific and it doesn't. Uh, it's really hard to do anything with the uh, manipulation and, and whenever the plant realizes that that's something foreign, it just gets rid of those cells. And uh, so it's really complicated. We are trying at least for the rootstocks to identify the genes that give tolerance to certain issues and diseases, and then uh, either do the transformation, like a, 
classical GMO approach, or now the new approach called the genome editing, where you understand which gene is the one that gives the susceptibility, and then you try to disrupt the way that that gene is uh, transcribed and expressed, and then it's no, no longer there, the trait is no longer there, and the plant withstands the problem. And so uh, to put things into perspective, so since I started in 2008, now it's 2000, uh, whatever, 21, uh, I made 419 crosses. That means I picked the mother tree and I picked the uh, father uh, for pollen. Uh, peach, uh, if you ever had a peach, you know you have one seed in the fruit. So I could only get one new plant for, for one flower that I pollinate. We normally pollinate or uh, emasculate, we remove male parts of the flower because peach trees can pollinate themselves. So we don't want that. I want to uh, choose the pollen. And uh, we usually uh, prepare about two to 3,000 flowers per cross. And then we apply the pollen by tapping the stigma with your finger. Because there's no magic way to do it. That's the way you do it, you know? And so, and then we, we raise about 29,000 of seedlings of the plants on their own root we planted over the years. And we uh, uh, look at them for two fruiting years. So they grow for three years after. Uh, so we make the cross in year one. Next, we overwinter the seed in the greenhouse. Next spring, we plant them in the field. They grow for two years. We see the fruit first year, then the second year, and then we make a decision which ones have a potential. And then we graft them on the rootstock and establish the orchard. And then we look for them a few more years. And then you get to the year 10. And then now we are in a process of actually where we planted them in the growers, places and what various environments and now we evaluating their performance and uh, within a year or two I will have my first uh, cultivar released and patented and so so to get back to the numbers we evaluated 26,000 of plants in the last 13 years about 2,000 uh, right now we have that are in that hybrid, that limbo, so to speak, stage when you wait for them to fruit. And we have about 450 that we actually move to the second level, which is about 1.7% of the numbers we raised and about 10% out of these uh, uh, sorry, about 10 of them, 2.2% out of these 450 hybrids are actually replicated across seven locations. So breeding is a numbers game. The more new individuals you can produce, the better is the chance that I'm going to get combination of all the traits that I want. So one of the ways so you see that how long it takes for me to know that particular tree has the traits that I want. So we try to go uh, parallel on like the genetic side of the things to understand inheritance, to find the gene responsible for the traits. And then we try to develop the tools, molecular tools or DNA tools, if you test something like these tests for COVID, which is not a good you know, comparison, but uh, we do the tests and we say, okay, this plant will be tolerant to this disease. 
but this one is susceptible. And so right now in my program, I'm using the DNA test for the bacterial spot fruit tolerance, because that's one of the biggest issues here in South Carolina on Southeast. And um, we, we don't even wait for the fruiting of all of these trees. When they're in a greenhouse stage, we take a piece of the leaf, we run the test, and we eliminate everything that doesn't have a chance to be tolerant. So this year we produced about 6,000 of new plants and we planted 745 in the field. Everything else was discarded at the greenhouse stage. To put things into perspective, in 2010, I had 10,000 trees in the soil that I had to walk and evaluate. So I basically was eating peaches every su whole summer because by the time I walk to the end of the field, I have to start again because, you know, they don't ripen at the same time. So you're becoming much more efficient at that process. Oh, yes. <laughs> I used to work with a, a plant breeder and he was fond of saying that plant breeding is the only job where you can fail 99 and a half percent of the time and be successful. <laughs> yeah. There is an actually a great list of uh, traits that the breeder has to have that my uh, colleague, Dr. Oki, he was a peach and prunus breeder from USDA, published in one paper when he was actually publishing uh, a historical breeding for uh, peaches on the southeast or the east coast of the US. And he said the breeder has to have a vision, passion, discipline, and willing to take the risk. Because if you think of it, uh, when I got a job at Clemson, the first thing I did, I had a meeting with growers saying, okay, what is the ideal pitch? What do you want to have in one particular tree? And then I said, okay, these things I can work on. These things I'll try, you know, but these things I, I, I don't know. I don't know the traits. I don't know anything about them. So at the time, they just wanted, you know, certain traits. But then I was thinking, okay, 10, 15 years from now, what else might be important? You know, climate change was happening already because the year I interviewed for the job, 2007, there was no peach production in Southeast. There was a late spring frost and everything was wiped out. So I knew the delay of bloom or would be one of the things that to look at. Since it takes 15 to 20 years to develop anything, <laughs> I had to kind of be the visionary. I had to predict what growers and consumers would want 15 years down the road and start immediately looking after those traits. You know, as for the passion and discipline, you have to be devoted to the job. You have to stay in place for long years because it's not in two years you get your product. And then the risk, I'm now in the phase of the risk. I have to be willing to give my plans to the growers and accept their criticism, you know, that it's not good. Oh, whatever you're thinking, you know, that it, because that's how it goes. And I'm pleased to say that I have one that they really like and that's the one that we are in a process of patenting and releasing so things are moving you know slowly but that, that's the fun of it you you kind of play with the plants with the traits and there is a, a big portion of knowing what you do but uh, also a significant portion of just being lucky 
and you know when my friend uh, Dr. John Clark from Arkansas says serendipity, you know, and so things sometimes fall into place the right way without even you knowing. So well, awesome. going back to your question uh, about how do I do it faster, I kind of hinted it. So we try to do this marker-assisted breathing that uh, listeners to this podcast might have heard from some other uh, uh, avenues. Um, and what that actually means, we try to develop the diagnostic tool to predict if the tree or the plant has the gene and it will have the trait that we want. And so that helps us to reduce the number of plants that we actually raise to the big trees and look at them into the field. That improves the efficiency, not necessarily shortens the time. For some other crops, like for apple, they, uh, they have a, um, a thing called a fast breeding, what that means, they have a plants that are kept in the greenhouse. They're protected because they are transgenic plants. But uh, the gene that controls the flowering is disrupted. So these plants are flowering nonstop. Which, what that means is that you can pollinate them nonstop. And so you have on the same tree, you have uh, flowers, you have fruits in the different stages of uh, growing. And so then you within, you can shorten the period uh, from five to one year. And wow. so that's uh, something that we are uh, hoping that we can develop in peach. What's good about that is that within those seeds, there is always a portion of plants that will not have the transgenic trait. So there is no GMO. And so, uh, but it allows you to grow those that have and pollinate with good ones. If you want to mix some uh, wild relatives with a good resistant trait with some good fruit quality and horticultural uh, qualities, then you can go back and forth, you know, uh, pollinating with the good one. And once you get all the traits that you want together, then you just pick the seed that doesn't have that flowering trait and then you of course have to wait four years until it flowers blooms you know gives the fruit but then you already have all of the traits combined in it so think about it as like a puzzle you want to put the right pieces together so you get a combination hmm. and when you pollinate the trees you basically mixing the it's like with people you are product of half of the genes from your dad and half of the genes from your mom. And so your sibling look like you, but are never the same as you because the genes were recombined differently. So that's the same thing that's happening in the fruit tree world. So we are trying to get it faster. And there are some techniques like trees have a dormancy period. But that means they're smart because they are sitting in one spot so they cannot go into the warm room when it gets cold outside. So they learned to basically shut down and get, get dormant during the winter. And then they count the cold hours until enough of the cold hours or we call, we call that cold requirement is satisfied. And then they start counting the warm hours 
because they won't they won't be fooled in the spring when you get a spell in January, you know, or five days of 70 degrees. They still need their warm requirements satisfied before they start blooming. And so that actually delays my process because when I harvest the seeds from my crosses, I have to put them in the cold for three months before they'll start germinating. So what I do, we apply hormones, we break that dormancy by hormones, and they start germinating within a days. And that's why I can immediately, in the year I make the cross, I can raise the plants, I can test them with the DNA marker test, and then I can push them, those that I keep, I can push them with the fertilizers in the greenhouse. And because I'm in South Carolina and our climate is mild, into the October, I can plant them at the end of September, give them about a month so they get accustomed to the environment and they go naturally into the dormancy. That's shaved off a year from my three years of, we call it juvenile stage, when there's no fruit. Well, Ksenia, it sounds like there's some awesome technology that you're working on. And we have a lot of students that listen to this podcast. I was wondering if you had any advice for maybe a student who has a passion for horticulture, breeding, and maybe wants to get into a similar industry that you're in. Oh, that's an excellent question. And one really good for me to answer. Right now, I am the president of the National Association of Plant Breeders. That's the National Association of the United States that includes also the Canadian colleagues. And we are trying to raise awareness of the breeding, of importance of breeding and how everything that you eat in the stores, being it from animals or plants, a product of breeding. So somebody stood behind and thought about the quality of the plant or meat that you eat and bred the animal or plant that would give the product that you like to eat. And uh, we have a great participation of students that are major part of our society because they are the future. So, and we have a, a really nice mix of the private and the public breeding breeders and so universities and uh, private companies to try to give them the experience. So if the students are excited about the breeding, that's all it takes. You just need to love it and have a passion for it. There is a, well, lots of avenues for you to get involved. And that, that is the best thing, I think, for uh, regardless of which career you choose in your life. Get to do internships because that's your hands-on experience and that's going to tell you right away if you like it or you don't because you're doing it and that's something that you'll be doing it for the rest of your life. You can tell I love my work. I don't feel like I'm going to work every day. I mean, I sometimes don't even go home, you know, and I'm, oh my God, it's already like 6 p.m. or whatever, I need to get home because it's so interesting and there's so many things that I like what I'm doing. And, you know, one of the big things that I, how I choose to do the breeding is because I like to eat fruits. So I wanted to eat what I work with. I mean, it sounds ominous, but <laughs> in my world, when I was a student, the first day of the school, our professors brought grapes and apples to greet the new freshman class. 
and my colleagues that were in the field crops, you know, there was no nothing, corn or soy or whatever they're going to eat, you know, and so the, we were bragging, you know, you see what we work with. And so you need to love what you uh, what you're going to be working with or what your future is going to be. And uh, one big thing. Uh, Agriculture is always linked to like dirt, you know, digging the holes and mud and it's far, far away from it. The new uh, um, private and public companies that have the breeding program going or services, there's so much more than just going into the field and being maybe technician at the farm or manager at the farm. There's going research going on into helping developing new cultivars, genetic side of it, discovering how you can speed up the breeding process, how you can help growers grow better peaches and eliminate the problems that they have in their environment or with their production. So I would encourage students to just uh, Google it, you know, look what it is, what, what people are doing. There are lots of great podcasts like these or the uh, YouTube resources where you can actually listen to the testimonials of the breeders some that are at the end of their career, some that are just beginning to see where they came from and how, how they manage and how, what is the work they are doing. I'm the example of the academia position. You know, I'm the faculty at Clemson University, but I'm 100% research. So I don't do teaching. I have my students that I educate through the master's and PhD thesis. And I occasionally give lectures about the fruit breeding, but I do not teach the class. I'm fully in the field. 12 months of a year, whenever the trees are calling, I like to say, I just jump and go. I don't need to wait, you know, okay, now I have a class or meeting or something. And that's something very similar to what the position is at USDA or at the private companies. Right now, we are trying to learn what is it that the private companies want in the new uh, wave of the uh, students that are finishing colleges. Because, you know, things are changing really fast and academia is not so prone to switching and changing quickly. So we try to update our curricula to learn what are the traits or um, experiences that will make you stand out when you go and interview for certain jobs. And one of the things I can tell you for sure is having that internship experience. For example, I had a master's student that we connected with the breeders and he spent uh, six months in Chile doing uh, breeding with an academia and then six months in California doing breeding with a private breeder. He went to finish his PhD with another program and now went back to that breeder in California and now is a breeder in, in that program. So there that connection that he made and uh, stayed throughout his PhD education and he actually ended up interviewing there and getting the job. So things are moving. Our country is learning that, uh, yes, it's good to have medications to treat your illnesses, but if you don't eat right, if you don't have a quality food on your table, 
you're not going to be healthy. And none of the medicines that you take are going to make you healthy unless you put the healthy food in your system. And, th and that comes from the agriculture. So we kind of forgot where the things are coming from and uh, the scale of the importance of the agriculture in the whole human lives. But now I think that this pandemic, as bad as it is, kind of put things in the perspective where you see that there's no food on the shelves and you no longer have a garden that you're growing them for your personal use. You, you start thinking, okay, where's that food coming from? And also last one of the last thing that I want to point, like support your local farmers. That's the best taste of the food that you're going to get because it's right there next to you. And it's a short distance for transportation. They're fresh. They're just picked that morning and then delivered to the stores. Of course, the long distance shipping is important because that allows us to have fruit 12 months of a year, you know, and all of the vegetables and everything, and they get spoiled with that. But also be cognizant of that, that uh, people that are close to you in the times like this pandemic and the stressful times can actually make a big difference that you don't feel that as much as you normally would do. That's a, a lot of great advice, Ksenia. And you're obviously very passionate about what you do. And I think this has been great. And we've appreciated talking to you today. If there's people out there that are listening and they want to learn more about what you do, learn more about, you already talked about learning more about plant breeding, but learn more about specifically what you do, learn more about peaches, whatever it might be. Do you have a website that you recommend or do you have some way that people can reach out to you specifically if they're interested? What would you advise? Most universities have an extension service. So depending on where people live, uh, you know, uh, conditions might be specific for that area. So the extension agents will be the best people to connect to asking about specific questions. But I am, of course, open to any, you can shoot me an email. I think you, you can put in the podcast my email at Clemson University or just Googling by Peach Breeding Clemson. You'll get my name because I'm the only one <laughs> because of that gap between the previous breeder. It's not going to be a confusion. And I'm, I mean, I'm open for uh, any questions and any and if I don't know the answer, I certainly know who does, and I can direct you to the right person. We'll be sure to link all that in the show notes here today. And once again, we really appreciate your time. It's been a great conversation, and we hope to talk to you soon. Thank you very much for having me, and it was great reconnecting with you, Jason, after so many years. The views expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the program hosts or their employer.